This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Robert Bausch, who joined me via Skype. His novels include Far as the Eye Can See, The Lives of Riley Chance, A Hole in the Earth, and The Gypsy Man, among others. In addition to writing, Bausch is also a college professor. His latest and eighth novel is called The Legend of Jesse Smoke, and it tells the fictional story of the first female quarterback recruited into the NFL. The story is told from the point of view of Skip Granger, an assistant coach for the Washington Redskins. He discovers Jesse and brings her into the fold of this male-dominated sport. We began the interview discussing how he came up with the story premise. I have three daughters, and I've always understood and, and watched them trying to, you know, come up and adjust in the world. And, you know, I had two sisters, and it, it always seemed funny to me that uh, the, the way we, um, we put each other in a sort of gender categories and stay there. And, and it, whenever there's anybody who sort of goes anyway out of that category, they're either made into celebrities or vilified, one or the other. And I just one day driving home, I thought, what you know, what would happen if somebody discovered a young woman who was maybe six one or six two and weighed maybe 170 and could throw a football a mile and accurately? What would you know? How would that work out? And it just from that, I just like wait, like every writer, you ask yourself, what if, and then you start working with that what if. Once you alighted on this idea. Did you start doing research to see if anything like this had ever been attempted? I don't mean as a as a novel. I mean, if a woman has ever tried to be in the NFL. No. One of the first thing I did was research the rules. I wanted to make sure that there was nothing that specifically said a woman couldn't play. That was the first thing. And then I, you know, as I was writing the book, I know a lot about football. I've been, you know, a very avid football fan for years. I played football. I loved the sport although I'm getting a little bored with it now. So I, I, I did research into things like uh, when was the first forward pass? How was that developed? Um, stuff like that. But um, oddly enough, while I was working on the book, um, I was very happy to see um, the Minnesota Vikings signed a young woman as a kicker for a tryout uh, that year. I think it was um, 2011 or 2012. And that made me very happy because I realized that my reading of the rules was just as um, I thought it was, that a woman could play if that somebody would let her. And then I knew that what I had to work on was what the reaction would be, what the media would do, what the, the other men on the team would do, and so on. I, I thought it was interesting about the rules for football, especially as a writer, because what it comes down to when you're reading the rules like that is language. It comes down to, you know, word choice and and making the right choices in those words when they made them. You had written, there's no specific reference that says women aren't allowed in the rules. And then you talk about the Declaration of Independence says men are all created equal. What do the rules say? Well, the, the, the rules really don't address the issue. It's just that in the rules, whenever they're talking about how many on the field, they say uh, 11 men per side, and um, the, there has to be seven men on the line of scrimmage. 
they, uh, it refers to men throughout the rules. Um, it, at no point does it say um, a he or she or anything like it. But uh, as as my character says in the novel, you know, when the, those Frenchmen and the Americans wrote all men are created equal, they meant men. But we don't think men now. And there's no reason to think men anywhere else we see it in rules. If it says there's 11 men on the field, it could be generic in the same way all men are created equal. It could also be, you know, a kind of generic term used in the rules. The thing that's important to know about the rules in football is first, they change every year. And second, it really takes a specific, there will not be allowed a woman on the field um, playing this game for them to keep a woman off the field. Tell me about your choice with first-person style. Basically, the the book is told from the point of view of Skip Granger, who is, would you call him the offensive coach? Yeah, offensive coordinator. Originally, when I had the first draft of the book, it was the title of the book was The Legend of Jesse Smoke, the, the true story of the first female professional football player as told to Robert Bausch, you know, by Skip Granger as told to Robert Bausch. I wanted it to be like, one of those sports books that the guy who wrote the book spoke to someone else and they wrote it. You know, there are a lot of those. But my agent suggested that, you know, why there's no need for that device. Why not just have a Granger telling the story? And so I agreed with that after a while. But I like that. I've always liked first person narration. I only have I have a lot of stories, I suppose, that aren't first person. But most of my books are first person narration. I like the potential for irony with first person narration. The that situation, dramatic irony, especially where the reader knows something that the speaker doesn't know by everything he says. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Robert Bausch, author of the novel, The Legend of Jesse Smoke. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So where where was Skip in his life? Basically, when the story opens, he seems a little bit downtrodden. He's on vacation in Belize, and that's where he first spots Jesse throwing a football farther than he's ever seen and with such accuracy. And he starts talking to her and gets the idea eventually to bring her to the Redskins. But what where was he in his life? Well, I saw him as a guy who is thinking that his career is in trouble. The The team has not done very well in the last year or so. And he's linked to this coach who may get fired and that will happen to him. And he has no family. His wife, he and his wife separated because football was his whole life. And he's on vacation in Belize, not as a scout, not looking for talent, but just sort of to distract himself from the year long drudgery of being an offensive coordinator in the NFL, of having to do what those guys have to do. They make a lot of money, but they don't really have a lot of time to spend it. So I just got this guy who's a little nervous about his future, who's on the beach in Belize, wasting time, trying to unwind a little bit. And suddenly he sees this woman who is throwing a football really accurately and um, in in a way he's never seen a man throw it. And so he he takes this risk, really. Um, she had signed, so she played with the Divas, which was in the Women's Football League in, in D.C. And then he was speaking about her because her name was Jesse Spoke, as if um, she was a man, or at least not referring to gender either way, to originally bring her to the team. Finally, obviously, everyone learns she's a woman, and she comes to try out. 
And Jessie's personality is such that she's she just wants to play football. And can you talk a little bit about the formation of her character and who you wanted her to be? First, I did, she's incredulous. She doesn't believe that the coach is interested in her for football. Uh, he says he's going to play a practical joke by showing his uh, prima, donna, prima donna quarterbacks um, a, a real talent and then show them that, you know, it's a woman. It's a practical joke. But I, the more I wrote about Jessie, the more I saw her as um, her own self. Now, one of the things I've always admired um, about the people that come into my life that, that stay in my life is the, those people who, who are themselves and nothing more, nothing less. So they don't try to be anything they're not. And because it takes a lot of courage to be yourself. Most of the time, the, the pressure in this culture is to pretend or to be whoever you're with, to be like the people you're with and to insist on your own authenticity, no matter what is courageous and beautiful. And I think that's what I wanted for Jesse. She's just herself. And the, the person she is, um, is a, she's a woman who loves the sport of football and wants to play it. She has a real connection with her father who taught her how to play it and who is really not um, a champion of women in the traditional sense of that word. She's a champion of being able to do what she wants in life and having others be able to do what they want in life. And so I, I liked just developing her character along those lines that she's a, she has as I think most women do, a champion's heart. But that's all. She's not really a feminist. She's not a radical anything. She's just a great athlete who wants to make use of her talents. When Jesse got onto the team and the public began to know, there was kind of a twofold reaction. One, um, the, the fans in the seats absolutely increased in the games, and she had a lot of fans and people came to watch. Maybe it was um, out of curiosity. Maybe it was out of wanting to see her fail. Maybe it was out of wanting to see her succeed. But there was a, a general kind of story going on in the culture that people could not accept that she was a woman that that they had to believe she was a man who had a sex change. Can you talk about that sort of ideology and lack of belief and and that trope? Well, I, I'm I'm you know one of the things I was doing was asking myself all the time what would the media reaction and the people you know the general social reaction be to this? And one of the things that Jesse is doing, as our current presidential candidate is doing, is trying to break through a pretty strong glass ceiling and, and to call it glass is only to say that you can see through it up to that top, but to break it, it's not just glass, it's marble. Uh, it's an unbelievably extraordinary barrier. And most of it comes from a kind of unspoken, certainly not admitted, but it's there misogyny that is rife in this culture. And I think that for instance, I think right now, at the not to get political or anything, but I think in this current election, if Hillary Clinton were male, she'd be leading Trump by 80 points. I think the fact that she isn't leading him by 80 points is evidence of a kind of misogyny that this culture isn't even aware of. The, the belief that a, a woman couldn't possibly have this talent is what makes a huge segment of the population believe that uh, she must have been a man who had a sex change operation. Um, who developed the talent as a man, because how could a woman get this good at football? And uh, to me, I feel like we 
there's this blanket over all of us that puts us in the dark, but that doesn't mean there isn't light. It's just there's the blanket. And if we could get the blanket off, we might be able to see the light. And to me, the light is there, there really isn't very much that men can do that women can't either. Uh, you know, I just saw a meme on Facebook that um, is I've known for a long time, and that is that uh, among the bones of the Vikings that they have been going through, the forensic scientists have discovered that fully half of the Viking warriors who conquered most of the world and discovered America first were women. People don't want to believe that, but that's that's what they're finding out. And so I, I, one of the things that I thought there would be was just what you said. You said it really as well as it can be said that that there would be a segment that would want to see her succeed really badly. There would be a segment that would want to go there to see her fail or see her be hurt. There would be a segment that would not believe that a woman could do such a thing. There's no way a woman could have this kind of talent. And there's misogyny in that statement. Now, I don't mean that a person who says no way a woman could do that hates women. I just mean that they have an attitude toward women that's misogynistic, that seems to imply that women are incapable of this. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Robert Bausch, author of the novel, The Legend of Jesse Smoke. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So as you started writing this, what were, for you, you know, you had to think about many things, um, having a woman on the team, just as simple as where would she change, you know, she would go to her hotel and change and then come, she wouldn't be in the locker room. Um, But what other things, like logistically, when you were writing about a woman, did you sort of realize you had to add into the storyline? The the biggest one, believe it or not, was and I and I just sort of made it happen in the book the way it happened to me. I'm going along in this story and he's developing this thing and he's going to he's figuring out how he's going to get her on the field. And 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 then he's hearing her celebrate with the divas and she's hollering because the divas win a championship and it hits him. She's got to call signals. And uh, how can she make her voice loud enough and baritone and deep enough for the all the men on the field to hear it, you know, and, and there was my own little misogynistic, misogynistic quirk there. Um, but then I, you know, remembered all the times that my wife has bellowed at me and I thought, well, what the hell she can, she's making as much noise as any man out on that field. And it's, but I wanted him to address that. And since I had that worry, I wanted him to have it. And as far as the logistics are concerned, I, I did work about that for a little while. I worried about it. And just as later in, in the book, the you know, the media starts speculating about her. Where does she shower? And is she having affairs with the men? I, I wanted him worried about about that, too. One of the things that helped me write this book was thinking about all of the possible reactions to a situation like this. So one of the things you had to do, I think you had to because... There, you are going to get readers who don't know anything about football, is that you had to explain the game. You actually have some diagrams that show plays, and you explain who some of the players are and their positions. How did you approach this? Because you don't want to be didactic, and you don't want to lose people from the actual story. Was this a challenge for you, and did you think about it a lot? Oh, yeah, it was definitely a challenge. And as a matter of fact, in the first draft, I had chapters that had headings like this. If you're not a football fan, you can skip this chapter. Because, you know, and I almost left it that way, because there are certain things. It's I, I figured out 
about halfway through that I can't keep doing that because a whole lot of what happens to Jesse happens because of what's going on on the field. And if the reader is actually skipping those chapters, they're going to they're not going to stay with the story. And so finally, I decided that I had to make a rudimentary um, introduction to football and the rules of the game and how it's played. But I didn't want to go too far down that road. Um, so I didn't. It's a very rudimentary introduction to the game. Now, I've had people who are not football fans who said they really love the book anyway, which is I'm glad to hear. Um, but um, I, you know, I'm using terms like slot receiver. I think the reader needs to know what a slot receiver is. And when I'm talking about the patterns that uh, receivers are running, uh, the running back and so on, uh, offensive linemen, middle linebackers, defensive backs, and how that all set up, I realized I just had to give a basic and rudimentary description of the game and how it's played and what the rules are. So I tried to make it as, you know, not didactic. I tried to space it out a little and I tried to make it as rudimentary and simple as I could. Um, football really is, believe it or not, a fairly simple game, although the way it's played and the way coaches approach it is fairly complex. The game itself is fairly simple. One of the things that I was thinking about is when you see football on TV, there's this innate suspense, especially when you get down to the end of a quarter or the end of the game when there aren't a lot of, of minutes or seconds left. And you have the advantage when you're watching sometimes to have an instant replay or a slow motion, and you don't have that in a book. I'm just wondering if you tried to write in some ways as you imagine the game unfolding. For instance, like on the bottom of page 182, it was third and 11. They had no more timeouts and 26 seconds remained in the game. So you know that when you're explaining what happens next, that you're you're doing something that takes place over 26 seconds. And I'm wondering, as you were writing these plays, especially at the end of quarters and games, if you thought about that suspense you feel when you're really watching and how to get it on the page. When, I'm, when I was writing that scene, that particular scene especially, I, I'm, I'm writing from the experience of many times watching a, a football game and the team I want to win is down to the very last seconds of the game. Um, what a lot of people who don't watch football don't understand is that, you know, in football you have a thing called a two-minute warning. And between the two-minute warning and the end of the game can be almost an hour in time, in real time, because they do everything they can to stop the clock after a play. A play takes between um, four and a half to five to eight seconds. And if they're incomplete pass, the, the clock stops. If a guy goes out of bounds, the clock stops, and they're doing everything they can. And they also have timeouts to make use of the clock. Uh, the Redskins just uh, against the Detroit Lions just recently scored a touchdown with one minute and five seconds left. And you tell somebody that you have one minute and five seconds for anything, they're thinking, man, I'm in a hurry. I, I don't know. I, one minute and five seconds, I don't know what I can do with that. But the Lions had three timeouts, and they ran seven plays in that minute and five seconds and scored a touchdown to win the game with 16 seconds left. Baseball is the only sport that isn't governed by a clock. And that's really one of the reasons why I love baseball so much. It's never really over until it's over. But in football, that clock is more important than on almost um, anything else near the end of the game if it's a close game. And their methods of using and manipulating the clock uh, make it very suspenseful in some games. And 
So I knew that if I got to this situation and I'm writing about it, that that suspense is going to already be there if I've described it well enough because, you know, time's running out. You know, the, the one of the things about the, all sports, really, but football especially, is that combination of both grace and brute force. You have to have both to play the game. And Jesse represents grace, and she's up against Bruce, brute force. And when there's only seconds left and the game is on the line, it's that's sort of fun to play around with. So did you choose the Redskins because they're sort of your home team, or are they your favorite team? Or both? It's probably just those two reasons. But I also have, have always believed that um, the Redskins have the most attractive uniform of any team in the league. Uh, I, I, you know, you can look at the uniforms of all the other teams, and none of them compare. I think this is my own opinion to the the, the design of the Redskins uniform. And so if I, I, it's fun to just picture those. I describe it at one point where she's the light is gleaming off those wet burgundy helmets. I, I, I just like the idea of it being a local team. And also I wanted her to be in Washington. I wanted it to be in the nation's capital where all of this is happening, where the media storm would maybe take on a slightly political flair. Did you think at all about the politics of the Redskins just in the fact that some people want them to change their name? Uh, I did. A, I, you know, I, one of the things I was going around saying is I hope they don't change their name until my book comes out. Uh, but I've you know, the it is uh, by any person's um, understanding of this culture and where it's been and its history. Uh, the use of that word, um, it was uh, basically the Congress more than anybody else used that word. Um, they had all kinds of names for. Indians. I, mean, I did a lot of research when I was writing as far as the eye can see. And you can almost, it's almost difficult to find anything in the written documents back then of people, you know, ordinary people using that as a slur. Um, it, it just, um, it has those overtones, obviously. But, you know, the U.S. Congress was constantly talking about the redskin problem. And uh, hell, the, the uh, Boston Tea Party, they they disguise themselves, this is their words, not mine, as redskins to throw, you know. So, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a controversial um, kind of, I don't know, um, it's a charged word, let's put it that way. But um, all of the surveys, and even the most recent one of actual Native Americans, there's very few of them who really care about that word. And um, who, you know, are, I mean, I think the controversy has started to wane now because the most recent survey of Native Americans, a huge uh, survey, not sponsored by the Redskins, but sponsored, I don't know which organization did it, expecting to find a different answer, I think, discovered that uh, most Native Americans really don't give a damn uh, about there, There's so many other problems that we should be dealing with besides the name of a football team. I mean, what is the the average lifespan of a Native American in this country is almost 10 years less than uh, an ordinary white person. And there's something wrong with that. The suicide rate is higher. The rate of alcoholism, the, the, um, the fundamental ways that Native Americans are constantly um, held back in this country and what's going on right now in the, on the Sioux Reservation. It's a reservation. It's Sioux land and they want to put a pipeline through it. Those kind of things. Those really matter, and that's what we should be 
angry about and what we should be spending our political energy on, not the name of the damn football team. So, Jesse, she didn't last that long. She was a star. Tell me about that decision to make that be the case for her. Uh, mainly, I wanted it because if a guy's going to tell the story of the legend of Jesse Smoke, and she played for 12 years and set all kinds of records, he's got to include that. And um, I, you know, I'm nearing the end of this book, and I'm thinking, do I want him to go on about Jesse's career when what I'm really hoping for is for he and her to to have some kind of understanding of what the thing has meant to them. And the more I thought about it, the more I decided that it would be better to have, I could give the history of some of the other players and what happened, but it would be better to have her um, time in the sport cut short by um, the, the knee injury. But also I hint in the book about her short career several times. So it seemed like I was just fulfilling what I'd already set up. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Robert Bausch, author of the novel, The Legend of Jesse Smoke. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, um, I thought about this a long time. I'm not a real Hemingway fan, but this first paragraph of Farewell to Arms is probably one of the most linguistically perfect paragraphs ever written. So, and this is what I always read to my students when I want to talk about writing, but it goes like this. In the late summer of that year, we lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plain to the mountains. In the bed of the river, there were pebbles and boulders, dry and white in the sun, and the water was clear and swiftly moving and blue in the channels. Troops went by the house and down the road, and the dust they raised powdered the leaves of the trees. The trunks of the trees, too, were dusty, and the leaves fell early that year, and we saw the troops marching along the road, and the dust rising, and leaves stirred by the breeze falling, and the soldiers marching, and afterward the road bare and white except for the leaves. And tell me why you chose this. Well, it's, um, like I said, it's almost linguistically perfect. There are no embedded sentences. It's as directly stated as anything Hemingway ever wrote, and he makes use of words like, leaves and trees and the soldiers marching. He repeats these things like notes and music uh, in the paragraph so that um, the image it provides is almost crystal clear, like something you're looking at through a beautiful lens. Um, And, you know, that kind of simple language appealed to me when I I was a young man beginning to write and reading uh, various works of literature. And can you read a passage that you wrote that was maybe tricky or changed a lot for the first draft or just something that you like how it turned out? Okay, well, the novel I published before Jesse Smoke was called Far as the Eye Can See, and it's a Western, and it's being told by somebody who's fairly illiterate um, and not eloquent and not poetic. And my object always was try to make him poetic anyway, in spite of his ignorance, and Uh, One of the passages that I struggled with was him describing how he feels when he realizes that he's in love with this young woman. But I'm just going to read this brief passage, um, and I hope you can see that what I'm doing is having this fellow who doesn't speak very well be poetic anyway. 
Um, he says, but then after more than just a little while, the boy falls asleep and Ink wraps him up tight in a blanket. Ink is the woman that he's coming to see he loves. She comes to me and puts her arms around my neck and says again, you have done very well. And it makes me feel like the whole world don't exist outside the rim of this here fire. I've done well getting to be with you, I say, and I realize I mean it. Now something very different seems to take hold of my mind. It ain't desire, neither. It's a feeling of being saved from something dark and final. You shot me, she says, and now I say to you, I am grateful for it. We will travel in daylight from now on, I say. She don't say much of nothing else the rest of that night. We lay in each other's arms, and I don't understand words like hate, nor death, nor killing, nor nothing at all nowhere but here between us in the blue night next to the curling fire and the white moon high over the silver tops of the dark mountains. Much later that night, I say, Diana, it's a beautiful name. I guess I'm kind of proud that I got I got that the way I wanted it. What was the challenge? To make it so that in spite of his ignorance, poetry, it's poetic anyway. When he talks about the, the, the dark night and the, the moon on the mountaintops and all of that, the, the, the blue night, he says, I think. It's, it's, it was always a challenge in that book to make it so that the prose is beautiful at the same time as it's very ungrammatical and um, fairly rudimentary. Where do you write? Uh, well, I write almost anywhere I am. But when, when I'm actually sitting down and typing, um, it's usually in my basement in front of my, you know, I have a computer and an ergonomic keyboard and I work at the keyboard. But I've made notes about what I'm going to do sitting in a garage writing on an envelope. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'll do almost anything to get away from writing. <laughs> I, I don't really like writing. I like having written. I like that. But when I'm writing, it isn't a lot of fun. Um, most of the writing I do is in the middle of the night. Um, I didn't want to take time away from my family. Uh, when I would be down here typing away writing and my son would come in and say, hey, dad, Whatever he had to say, I'm with him. If he said, let's go fishing, I'd, okay, and I'd get up and do it. I didn't get a lot of sleep. Still don't. I write, like I said, in the middle of the night most of the time. But, you know, I think any day I write is, is a good day. And so I sort of feel like, for my own discipline, I have to make myself do it whenever I can find the time to do it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, nobody. My wife is the first one to read a manuscript when I'm done with it, but while I'm working on it, I don't let anybody see it. Uh, I, I'd let it set myself. I just sort of never have done that. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, that's the life of a writer. The life of a writer is no. Um, I remember uh, seeing an interview with um, Woody Allen, and he's talking about a story he wrote that he sold to The New Yorker, and he said, in the interview, this is the only story I've ever written that I sold on its maiden voyage. And it hit me. Even Woody Allen gets rejected. I mean, we all get rejected. That's the life of a writer. People are saying no to you all the time. And it's not that kind of rejection that bothers me. I mean, I just send it to somebody else. I keep working. But it's when you publish a book and it comes out and hits the pond and sinks and nobody pays any attention to it. That's the kind of rejection that can be if you let it bother you, fatal to a writer. So I'd, I'd sort of go on and try to ignore that kind of thing. And what is your favorite word? Favorite word? Oh, geez. Um, it, <laughs> after what I just said, I think my favorite word is yes. Uh, but I don't know. I've, I've always, to me, 
love is is a great word i think and i i think it's an it's a verb i think it's an action it's a thing we do and so i like that word i guess more than any other You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Robert Bausch, author of the novel The Legend of Jesse Smoke. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.